we just got done recording a crazy episode with Dave Klein. Um, Dave was the CEO of, uh, of several departments and subsequently co-head of recording at Bridgewater Associates, one of the largest hedge funds in the world, uh, with over 150 billion in assets under management. During his like a decade-long tenure uh, at Bridgewater, he recruited and mentored over 100 managers. Bridgewater's known for a strong culture. Uh, some call it a social experiment. Some in a cult. We spoke to him to find out how things were on the ground from an insider's perspective. You know you're going to enjoy this. Uh, let's dive right. Welcome to Founder Story, your go-to podcast series on breakout startups and the secret heroes behind them. Each week, we'll bring you a fresh new take on leading figures in the startup landscape as we deep dive in their startup journeys. In today's episode, we have Dave, the man behind Skillscouter.com. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Super all the bigger. To get started, can you tell us how did you get started at uh, Bridge Auto? Absolutely. Yeah, so um, I'd love to say that it was part of a brilliantly masterminded strategy uh-huh. for me to for me to get into the company. But the the reality of the situation, it was a brilliantly masterminded coup by someone on my team uh, when I was at Moody's. So basically, uh, a recruiter reached out to one of my direct reports, suggested that there was this great opportunity up in Westport, Connecticut, and uh, he said, "You know, I'm not that interested. I live in New Jersey, but my boss lives in Connecticut, right? Maybe talk to him. And so uh, one thing led to another. And that call came in at a week when the uh, the train to New York City broke down three days in a row and my hour commute turned into two and a half hour commute. So uh, one thing led to another. We had a few conversations. I was completely intrigued by what they were building, uh, which seemed as much, uh, you know, an asset manager, but also a different way to manage, like turning management into a a craft onto its own, doing it in a systematic way, generating data about people. Like I'm sure you've heard about like the baseball cards or the dot collectors and things like that. Were well, you expecting to uh, join Bridge Autumn? Maybe in the back of your mind, maybe one day I should be working there or it'll be cool. It'd be a cool place to work. So I hadn't even heard of them. Crazy enough. Like they were, within the fact that they were one of my clients. So, but I hadn't, you know, we have hundreds of clients at Moody's. And so it's just another name on the list. Um, I had, it was only when I really started interviewing that I got uh, a taste of how things would be different. You know, for example, all of my interviews were recorded, uh, and uh, which is pretty uncommon for interviews. And then to learn that that's not just the interviews, but every single meeting is recorded. The baseball card system, was it there when you joined a decade ago or were they just starting to develop it? Uh, it was there as I joined. It was a little bit, uh, a bit more kludgy. You know, when I joined, it was kind of the tail end of being Excel spreadsheet. Um, you know, the beginning of kind of the tools that he's now made more publicly available. Could you tell us how the baseball card system looked like for those who don't know? So, um, I think the problem that we were trying to solve is sort of the typical performance management problem, right? Where people do work for, you know, 52 weeks. And then you sit down with your manager and they sort of remember the last 10 days and then give you a grade for the year and your bonus is based on that, et cetera. And instead it was much more like, how could you help people use data to be more consistently self-aware? And so, you know, across something like 60 attributes from, you know, creativity to detail orientation, to conceptual thinking, et cetera, you would receive observations all the time. Right. So I'd be in a meeting and I might say something very clever and 
seven or eight people could record into a tool called the dot collector, that that was a creative idea. Right. And then I might say, I might say something really narrow and dumb 10 minutes later, and they might say, you know, that was negative in a particular dimension. And those little observations would add up to then a baseball card that would say like, wow, consistently Dave is creative. Um, consistently Dave is also linear, something like that. Right. Um, and you know, that would be based on thousands and thousands of observations from, you know, dozens or hundreds of people that you interact with instead of just your manager remembering what happened last week at the end of the year. The criteria of are they different for managers and different employees? So it's the same for everybody, like everybody's mission of creativity, uh, everybody's mission on the same criteria or based on their role, is it different? Um, well, I would say this, the baseball card, the system would record the same criteria for everybody. I think the thing you're alluding to is then saying, um, which criteria matter for a job, right? I think if you put it into a sports analogy, you might say, you know, if I were using baseball as the example, you know, I could record pitching statistics for the person who plays right field, you know, like I could see that they throw 90 miles an hour, but it's not that relevant yet, you know? But so we have one system and then you would say as a manager, I could use that system to kind of stare at different people's um, profiles and match to the types of things I needed for my type of job. So I, you know, as you mentioned coming in, I, I was the COO of a couple departments, right? So that tended to be more like operational, organized, consistent. So I'd be looking for people with that type of profile. Right. When I was then working in recruiting, you know, one of the jobs we had were sourcers. These were the people who had to like creatively think about where in the world is the best talent hiding for us to go find it? You know, so I had a, a very different profile that I would want out of that person. Um, and this tool would just give you more data to kind of work from the experiences they had had instead of just like a CV. Do you think a system like this can be implemented for all organizations regardless of their size? Or do you think there's a side limit that maybe is too complex for a small organization, say a startup with 10 employees? Also, will this work in other industry outside of finance? Great question. I think the answer is predominantly no. Right. Like I would say, um, but let me separate the, the way we implemented it from my things I think you could do. Right. So like, yeah, when viewers sort of hear me describing it, it sounds like a Twitter feed for feedback, which is what it was. Right. right? Like, like I said, I had, I had almost 10,000 observations um, on me and that, that feed of those observations were publicly available. So literally you could go in and see all the positive and negative feedback I had gotten at any point in time. Right. And that was for everybody. Um, I just don't think most organizations will have the interest, the desire, and the uh, consistency to do that at that scale. What I do think you could do, if you go kind of the baseball card side of it, though, of having, uh, of having a couple of things. One, a description of the types of capabilities, values, et cetera, that, your organiza that is important in your organization for different roles, right? right? Having that picture and that shared language, I think is something that doesn't have to be very complicated, right? You, you basically write it down, share it with people and get them to start using it. And then having more regular observations than once a year, you know? And so like when I'm coaching people, I'll encourage them to say like, yeah, you should have expectations with people. You should remind them what about their strengths and weaknesses are going to help either help them or hurt them against pursuing those expectations. And then you should have conversations, you know, probably monthly, but at least quarterly about how it's going, you know, 
where are they doing well and exceeding your expectations? Where are they coming up short? And matching it to that picture of what they're like is often very helpful for them in terms of getting better. Um, I think the next bit, maybe along the popular bit of uh, 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 things from their culture is idea map doctors. Um, could you tell us a bit more about that place, how, how they work? Um, the concept that, somebody's even trying to define the concept, you know, it's this idea that the best, the best ideas should rise to the top. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't, you know, I think people hear that and they think of like a, a free for all of ideas coming from every direction. And I would say it's not typically the case. There was usually two ways that an idea would win out. So one way it would be, um, it's coming from a person with a track record in that particular domain. Right. Right. So if we go back to the recruiting example, you know, a great idea from, from a recruiter who has a 10 or 15 or 20 year history of recruiting is probably weighed more heavily than someone who just showed up and it's their first day in the recruiting department. Right. Right. So there's a little bit, this concept of believability that said, you know, that could easily turn into an echo chamber. So you sort of need to see the other side of the idea of meritocracy, which is like the best matching of data logic, right? So you could, oh, you know, you don't want to just fall back on, you know, people's reputation and their track record, or you'll miss out on the new ideas. And so for the new ideas, it was much more, does this make sense? And, and does the data support that point of view? And so those are sort of the two factors that were often coming in um, together to kind of fuel the idea of meritocracy. So this was a bit different to a democratic system where everybody gets a single vote regardless of their competency level. Here the votes are weighted based on their competency and relevancy for that decision that has been made, right? Well, can I, you know, Al, I would say, I would say one thing is I wouldn't even, um, I wouldn't confuse meritocracy with democracy. So there was never really a vote. Right. Right. Like partly what was expected of us uh, in really any leadership role or what we would call a responsible party. Anyone who was responsible for something, what came with that responsibility is you were the one who was required to make the decisions. Right. So the idea of meritocracy was giving you lots of ideas and lots of data and giving you alternative points of view that you might not have sourced on your own. But as the person responsible, you still had to decide. If you look at top to bottom decision making, these systems tend to be slow compared to top to bottom systems. Especially if you're in a startup environment where speed of execution is everything. Well, and to be, and to be fair, it, there was points in time it was slow. Right. Right. Uh -huh. Because, because there was also this, and again, this is part of the beauty of the system was there were these different principles that were competing and creating intentional tension. Right. So one of the tension was this idea of like, like fighting to get in sync or fighting for truth. Um, and so you were encouraging people to debate. Got it. Right. And you're encouraging. And, and if you think about running an investment manager, that could make a lot of sense. Right. You want the best ideas fighting for their point of view because you're generating alpha and alpha is effectively a zero sum game. So if Bridgewater doesn't go get the alpha, somebody else does, right? If they don't get the, if they don't get the excess market returns. And so I do that. And this is where I would say like, you know, even running my own business now, like, I don't know that I would try to replicate that system in full because I'm not an asset manager. I don't necessarily want every decision debated. I want the input, I want the data, right. But I don't know that I want to, um, I don't have a vehicle that will convert debate into alpha in the same way. Great. Let's talk about the controversy. For instance, this article from Counterfair Magazine, how the system is having a negative psychological impact on employees. They even have this case study of a former CEO 
Hope Woodhouse, uh, how she was shredded in front of all the employees and was on the verge of crying. What would you say to this criticism? It's a good question. You know, I don't think Bridgewater has a monopoly on people crying at work. Right. You know, if you look at, if you look at the stats right now, where something like 70% of people are open to leaving their jobs, uh, I don't, I don't know that Bridgewater is particularly unique in that way. Right. One of the, one of the things that we try to do, and I, I experienced it you know, on my way into Bridgewater. And then, um, as someone who did a lot of recruiting and ultimately led a recruiting department, we tried to do more of this, which is to be very transparent with what you could expect. Right. You know, like we tried to build into the recruiting process. Like we actually, like the, the, the tape of the, uh, article that you're describing was part of the recruiting process. Like people actually watched it. Right. Uh-huh. And said like, this is because we are, because we are going to be able to have these types of transparent conversations about good performance and about bad performance, et cetera. You know, this happens, right? You know, like it's a very, it can be very raw and it can be even we're going to, when we would solve problems down to the level of not just what broke in a process, but who designed the process and what about that person led to that design flaw. It's a very different level of like emotional uh, connection that you're going to make. And it can come with like really strong bonds for people who um, want that type of environment, right? Like it's, it's sort of mimicking the same environment, like elite athletes go through, right? Yeah. You think about like the New Zealand all blacks, or you think about, um, the blue angels and like their ability to debrief after things in a very transparent, like this was bad. This was good. You know, we're not going to sugarcoat it. That's what I think we were trying to replicate, but not everybody makes, not everyone wants that type of environment and not everyone thrives in that type of environment. Right. And I think, and I get, and I think if you get that mismatch, like it's, it is going to be as hard as probably described in some of these articles. Something you just brought up, um, the con situation, the great resignation or the great reshuffle, how are you going to call it? What is your view on that? Um, you know, it was interesting. I was, I don't know if you saw this, I put a poll on Twitter because I was super skeptical. Right. I was like, there's no way that all these people want to leave their jobs. This is just sensational headlines, et cetera. And so I kind of dared Twitter to show me I was wrong. Uh -huh. And um, much like Twitter does, they showed me I was wrong. And right. it was an amazing set of stats where, you know, 20% of people had left their job in the last year. Another 30% were actively looking and another 25% said I could be convinced. Right. And so, you know, with my, you know, I do a lot of, of coaching and training of managers, you know, and I, I said to my last cohort of, of the managers, well, it's a good news, bad news story. The bad news is two thirds of your team is willing to leave you, is willing to leave right now. And so if you're not really leaning into making sure that they're engaged, doing good work, they're growing, et cetera. You know, you're running a real risk that half your team's gone in a year. The good news is that talent, you probably never really had a shot at getting, right. you know, even as, even before the pandemic is now on the table. And so you can go be more proactive and clever and try to entice people away from their jobs, especially if you have some of the things that, you know, I think people are valuing right now with flexibility, different locations, et cetera. And so. You know, you sort of have to kind of protect what you have, but then there's, there's a real chance to go upgrade your team if you want to take advantage of it. Um, with the post pandemic remote work culture, what are your views on remote work? Is it as effective and efficient as people in offices, especially in organizations like Bridgewater? 
I think the trades, um, I might, I might be on the, the minority of this point of view. Um, I think the trade-offs for, um, being remote first outweigh being in the office. So what I mean by that is, you know, when you are just if I just go back to being a Bridgewater, right. Mm -hmm. Even with that name and that brand and that credibility and the resources we had, you still had to go entice people. And we, and we were very much a, a local only, like you, there was no remote work for a long time. And so you had to be in connect. Right. Uh, cause it was also our primary office. And so, you know, my, my ability to go get talent was really constrained by people who were, you know, qualified to do the job and willing to come to Connecticut. Right. They had you to know, physically move them, not to work for you. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh -huh. You know, and then I put that in contrast to a team, to a, a company that's remote first and saying, if you can build that way and operate that way, you have, you know, three to 5 billion people available in the workforce globally, you can work. You know, you can set that up to work around the clock. You can source employees from different geographies that you're in, et cetera. And then I think you could still bring them together almost instead of how we used to do offsites mm -hmm. where we take people and go somewhere else. You could also do onsites, on which is yeah. once a quarter, bring, bring, if you, even if you brought the whole company together for two weeks, every quarter, the money you save by not having physical real estate and all the other pieces would be so dramatic. It's, it's still better. And because they were coming together and focused in that way, I think the quality of the interaction you get in the two weeks is probably higher than what you were getting in the, in the kitchens, um, occasionally during the, uh, the quarter. Right. You know, and then again, I don't know exactly where you live. Like all my friends who are out in the tri-state area, you know, like you, it could be 90 minute commute into New York city. Right. And so you're like three hours a day, you're on a train or you're in a car and like, I love podcasts as much as the next person, but you know. As a company, would I rather let them have two hours of their life back and get an extra hour of productive work because they can just do it at home? Um, anyway, that, so I kind of added up to being, I think the, you think so? I think we'll look back in 10 years and the companies that embrace this fastest will be the furthest ahead. Do you think working remote is as effective, especially let's say in a brainstorming session where in an in-person team, um, they can have a heated debate and come with new ideas? I think so. I think that um, probably one of the, I mean, it's hard to say there's a silver lining in the pandemic. It was a, a tragic two years, but one of the silver linings is we sort of all went through the transition at once. Right. You know, and so like, I remember doing Zoom meetings before um, the pandemic and it was this weird hybrid that was terrible where you'd have a, a room full of 20 people on one screen and then three poor people who'd be like in some other location on their own little boxes. And they just always got excluded. Like they weren't in the meeting. It was kind of a joke to pretend they were. Right. Versus, versus now it's like exactly like this session, like here's the three of us and we all have a box. Right. Um, and the collaboration tools are so much higher. You know, like I, I've stopped sending emails and start sending looms to people to give feedback and they're like, oh my gosh, it's like we're together. Right. Um, and so I just think, you know, with a little bit of like creativity and the speed with which the technology is catching us up, the, the delta between being in person or being like this isn't very high anymore. Super. Um, can you tell us about your new venture? Skills code. For those who don't know, what is skill code? About to. Um, yeah, so when I, I left Bridgewater about 15 months ago, and the goal was to buy a business. Uh -huh. And so we, we looked at all kinds of different businesses. I, at one point, was doing due diligence on an oil change franchise. Um, but I was sort of drawn to the digital world, and I wanted to be a space that I was passionate about. So right. as you sort of hear, like this idea of, of 
remote opportunities. And for, in this particular case, education is what I am pretty passionate about. So we found a, we found a website to buy, um, and I bought from a person in Australia, reviews online education opportunities across a number of different like, topics, right? So if you want to learn Python or if you want to learn piano, you know, that is, you now have the ability to find the best instructors in the world and have them come to your house, right? And so we started, we, you know, we reviewed that. Part of what I was hoping to build with that is there's these ideas of cohort-based courses, right? Where, you know, a group of 20, 30, 50, 100 people will come together um, for a small period of time on a particular topic. And so I took, by, by kind of happenstance, I took a course with Saul Hill Bloom on audience building Twitter. I did that six months ago. I had 40 followers. I met this amazing community of other people who were trying to create communities around their own specific um, needs and interests. And so, you know, but I was seeing this trend of these cohort-based courses. And so part of the idea with this business is that we should be able to extend and start to review those courses as well, draw more people into that world. And then finally, um, either buy or create our own courses, right? And so that sort of was what followed behind that, where I created the management accelerator, kind of taking the 20 years of management experience um, and all the mistakes I made and the systems I had built and then teaching sort of managers in their first, what I thought would be their first couple of years, but it turned out to be really the first 10 years. Um, some of the people who got the most out of the course so far are people with five to 10 years experience um, at big companies. You know, we had, we had Amazon, we had Spotify, you know, we had Microsoft, we had Facebook. It was kind of crazy just to see, but, you know, to kind of come together with 40 or 50 other people, take the time to rethink how you manage, borrow some of the systems we were even talking about earlier in this, um, in this show. Uh, it's been great. So it's sort of, you know, I went from buying a site to kind of growing a site to cover more of the online education market to now being an instructor myself in that market. So it's been a fun, serendipitous journey. What would be the advice you'd give to somebody just starting out, probably in their early 20s? Um, they want to break into, let's say, finance or tech, especially with this post-pandemic remote culture. I think now my, um, it's funny, I wrote about this this morning, so I would just connect it to that, which is um, one of the things we do at the end of the course is I'll talk to people about building their their professional brand. You know, and so you, you brought up the remote piece. Like, I think it's more important than ever that you think about what is the brand I'm trying to build? And it can evolve over time. Right. But, you know, is your professional brand going to be, I had, well, I had a student who like his professional brand was he was the firefighter. Like when something broke in the company, they dropped him in and he fixed it. Right. Now, I have another one who was like the creative, you know, the creative problem solver. So when, when, when other groups got stuck, they bring this person in to like unlock them with new clever ideas. And so like whatever your professional brand is, First, kind of know what it is and then start to collect experiences and build relationships with people that enhance that, right? And so it's, it's for me, instead of saying like, go be in finance or go be in a particular industry, I would say like, build the experiences that enhance the brand. Right. And, um, and especially early on, like if you're in your 20s, like learn the ones that are going to be broadly extensible, right? So you might want to learn how to tell great stories. That might right. not seem like a, a skill that's obvious, but no, almost no matter what business you're going to be in, you're always going to have to like tell the story of yourself, tell the story of your product, tell the story of your work. And to learn to tell great stories so people pay attention. You know, another one could be, um, you know, I, 
we have a couple of young girls, uh, you know, kind of 10 and 12. And so I think if you are not learning to at least be, uh, digital, dig- like reasonably digitally savvy, right. you are going to be behind in the world. So whether that's, you know, like coding, or at least knowing how to use no code tools, et cetera, like the ability to put together a landing page, put together a marketing campaign, you know, put together some sort of, you know, clean graphic, et cetera. Um, all of those just feel like extensible skills that whether you're in finance or tech or something else you can take with you. And so I would, I would be making sure that I'm collecting some of those extensible skills while I am building that brand. I think those are probably the two pieces I put together. Why are your three favorite nonfiction books? Got it. I'm like glancing over at my book stack. Um, one that I've been recommending a lot lately, um, is, uh, a book by Julie Zhao, which is called the making of a manager. Uh, it's just a very accessible, uh, recounting of going from being an individual contributor at Facebook to being a, a, se- a senior manager there. She kind of like takes you on the journey and through all the mistakes she makes. So that's, uh, that's, that's kind of been high on my recommendation list. Um, I'm like halfway into this halfway into resilience right now by Eric Greitens. Um, Multiple people recommended it to me on Twitter and just said it's one of the most beautifully written um, nonfiction books that they had read. And I, I have to say, like, I am as interested in the content as I am in the writing. Right. Um, like, exceptionally, it's pretty moving. Like, it's all based on um, letters that he wrote to um, a fellow Navy SEAL who was, like, struggling in life. And so he, he went through the series of writing letters to kind of help him work through that. Um, and so it's extremely compelling. And then, um, those, those are like, if I was recommending two right now, I'm recommending those two. Um, Got it. the third one actually become a tie between like 20 bucks. So I'm not sure which place to go. Even a fiction books is book is fine. Uh, maybe something you read, uh, when you were young. Well, maybe I'll just give you an author books too. You know, like, like Seth Godin is someone I've read for two decades. Um, and each, you know, you, you sort of think like how many different topics is he going to cover in a way that's really compelling? Um, but each one I find, you know, 10, 15 insights from. So, uh, and he's good. He's good in the sense of a lot of writers will like blow up a book to be, you know, 350 pages long when it was really a, an 80 page idea. And if he's got an 80 page idea, he'll write an 80 page book. So, um, you know, whether it's the, you know, whether it's the dip or tribes, there's lots of, lots of good options for Seth. I think his most prominent work will be the purple car to stand out in marketing. Purple cows, a big one too, yeah. Thank you for being here and sharing us with your journey. And that is a wrap. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for tuning in. If you liked the episode, spread the word, share it on your socials. You can follow us on Twitter and Insta for more sneak peeks on what's to come. Until next week, keep on building.